Today, as we continue in our Impact World series, we are again in Acts chapter 8. Uh, we'll be taking a little longer passage than last week. We will be reading from uh, verse 9 to verse 40. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing for us so that we can actually hear the text. And uh, hopefully those of you who are watching at home have your Bibles so you're able to, to track that. Um, I want to strongly encourage you whenever you are engaging uh, with the Word online or in, uh, in a church setting when eventually we get back to a normal gathering, to have your own Bible with you. So you get used to handling it. You get used to actually seeing God's Word in front of you, finding your way around. The more, just like driving around a town, the more familiar you are with it, uh, then the more comfortable you'll be. As we read from Acts chapter 8, we'll begin with verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and had amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip... As he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived... They prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that He may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me that nothing you have said may happen to me. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met a, an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading, Philip asked? How can I, he, asked, he answered unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. 
He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would clear away all other voices, anything that would compete in our minds and our hearts with what you have for us today. Lord, protect all who hear this now from human opinion. Guide us into a right understanding of the Scriptures by your Holy Spirit. Give us a deep desire, not only for your benefits, Lord, but for you. Teach us in these moments to see Christ as most precious. To recognize your supremacy in all things. To be filled with your Holy Spirit in such a way as to have our lives, our hearts, our very minds transformed so that we prioritize what you prioritize and we know you personally as our Lord. We give you this time for your glory. All time is yours. All glory is yours. Father, in this moment, as we set aside this short period of time to gather, although virtually, to gather together, worshiping, studying, seeking you as a family, as the body of Christ. Lord, guide us. Receive our worship today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. So begins Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. And as Dickens here relates, so we see in Acts 8 and in our own day a tale of two responses to the message of Christ. Call it true and false conversion, if you will. Both existing at once in extremes, intermingled yet parallel, with no middle ground. This is the picture the Holy Spirit paints through Luke's pen in the account of Philip's converts in Acts 8. 
the core reality kind of jumps out as we look at this as a whole. It's simply this. Saving faith involves a confession of the heart, not merely a profession of the mouth. Let me say that again. I want to make sure that we grasp this. Saving faith involves a confession of the heart, not merely a profession of the mouth. Now, what does that mean? In fact, when I uh, talked to my son Gabriel about this earlier, he said, so what's the difference between confession and profession? That really is the crux of this entire message today. The difference between confession and profession, between what is actually spoken from the inner person, from the inside out, as opposed to that which is merely spoken by the mouth, professed, a creed, a statement. Saving faith is a state of the heart, not a statement of the mouth. True conversion springs from a reborn heart. As we see these things, we need to recognize that the hallmark of true conversion is inner transformation. It's not just what we say or the clothes we wear, or the church we go to, the denomination we belong to, you know, how, uh, how smart we are, how cleverly we can package our faith descriptions. It's not about that. It's an in, internal change, a rebirth. It's not simply an experience. As we go through this today, it is my hope and prayer that you will see the difference between a flesh-based ministry, a flesh-based so-called faith, and a spirit-based ministry and faith. We live in a world today, and I think perhaps especially in the United States, we live in a world where we are so passionate about growing the church I would even be so generous as to say about winning souls, and perhaps that's too generous, that we work really hard to come up with human schemes and strategies and machinations to try to produce faith, to try to produce converts, to try to win souls. We come up with messages that tickle itching ears. We work really hard to have the best live stream the best podcast, the coolest band, the best dressed pastor. We try to do all of these things to appeal to our senses, to appeal to the experience. We here in America have exported the prosperity gospel around the world. It's really a big market, and I do say that with some derision. The idea of the gospel is so foreign to this prosperity gospel, this idea that God just wants me to be happy, it is so foreign to that that it's like two completely different doctrines, two different faiths. It's not Christianity to say that if I get all this faith power working in me, I can do great things, I can have a great life, I can have great influence, and I will have everything go right, and my life will just be pleasant and happy. That's not the picture that we get in Scripture, and it's not even the picture we get in Acts chapter 8. Now, before I continue, I need to make sure that we understand both of these stories, 
these, this vignette of Simon Magus or Simon the Sorcerer, and also the story of this Ethiopian official, both of them come to faith in Christ, so-called, through the ministry, through the evangelism of Philip. Same guy, preaching the same gospel, the same way, ostensibly. But it's the same, the same truth about the same Messiah coming from the same mouth. And yet, two dramatically different responses. How do we get to that place? Saving faith involves a confession of the heart, not merely a profession of the mouth. Profession is to speak something forth. Confession is to speak something in agreement with, to speak something along with. In other words, to speak from the heart. When I confess something, I am acknowledging something is true. If I've committed a crime and I commit to that crime, I am confessing, I am admitting, I am acknowledging the truth of my crime, of my transgression. Professing can mean a lot of things in a lot of different contexts, but it is always the speaking forth. Very often in modern usage, we would use profess as something that indicates perhaps a level of hypocrisy. It's not necessarily so, but very often we use it in that way. I can tell you something, I can profess something, and yet not actually take that to heart myself. I can profess the virtues of a particular lifestyle while not living, living that lifestyle. I cannot confess those virtues until I make them my own. This is the difference. Confession is speaking out what is inside. Profession is speaking something that I recognize and I'm familiar with, but it may not actually be mine. Saving faith involves a confession of the heart, not merely a profession of the mouth. Notice this, receiving Christ is more than just wanting His benefits and fearing judgment. Now, we're not going to come to Christ if we don't recognize His benefits. In fact, we're commanded in Scripture or exhorted in Scripture not to forget the Lord's benefits. It is beneficial to walk with God. We see that throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament writers echo that same thing. When you walk in the way of life, you will find that the way of life is beneficial. The wisdom books from Job through uh, Ecclesiastes are all screaming this same thing. If you follow how God has designed reality to work, and you align your actions, your choices, your thoughts with what is true, what is real, and what is right, then the life that you lead will be better, ultimately, than if you choose to go against that. To, to borrow from our passage for next week, if you kick against the goads. If you are trying to, to struggle against the way God has designed reality so that you can benefit according to your natural flesh, that's a losing game, always. Receiving Christ is more than just wanting His benefits, though. It's not simply that. There's nothing wrong with coming to Christ because you desire heaven. 
But at some point, we have to mature past that. We have to get past the idea that it's just what I can get from God. And it's more than just fearing judgment. There's nothing wrong with fearing judgment. We should. And it's commanded in Scripture for us to fear God. Why should we fear God? We talked about that last week. He is an omnipotent being, the omnipotent being, all-powerful. He is also holy, and we are in ourselves because of sin, his adversaries. His judgment and wrath are our natural state. All of us, according to John 3, stand condemned already. That's where we start. We should fear judgment. We should fear God. But at some point, we need to mature past that. So we get beyond this idea of wanting his benefits and fearing his judgment. Not that we ever stop those things, but those things become rolled into, superseded by a joyful embracing of God's grace given to us at the cross. That's what we see in Ethiopian, as we'll talk about as we go. Receiving Christ is more than just wanting His benefits and fearing judgment. It's joyfully embracing God's grace given to us at the cross. Now, there are so many things that I really want to take us through today. We don't have time to develop them. So if there are things that, that uh, raise questions for you, then please, uh, you can send an email. You can, um, you can hit us up for the podcast. You can leave, if you're watching on YouTube or on Facebook, you can leave comments so we can follow up on it because we won't be able to develop everything today. But I do want us to, to really... Dig down on this idea. We want to hammer this home that saving faith involves a confession of the heart, not merely a profession of the mouth. What we see in two vignettes is that you cannot, perhaps you've heard this before, judge a book by its cover. You can't judge a book by its cover. We have two covers that look very similar in this passage. And yet the book is very, very different. It occurs to me as we do this, I've said this so many times, and I'll continue to say it so many times, not everyone who has a jersey is on the team. Not everyone who claims Christ belongs to Christ. And I wasn't really sure how to take this passage about Simon the sorcerer, often referred to as Simon Magus. The early church fathers actually uh, saw him as the founder of what would become known as Gnosticism. In fact, when, when he refers to himself and the people acknowledge him as the great power of God, that seems to come from or, or be related to the concept of emanations called powers by the Gnostics. That there are vast emanations that reach out to God in special knowledge and special power. And there's a mysticism that goes along with that. It's a great heresy that plagued the early church and I think still has tentacles today. But as we look at these two different responses, when we get past the similar appearance of the cover to actually look at the book, there are two parallels or two contrasts that we'll be able to see here. First, Simon knew the power of celebrity. The Ethiopian knew the meaning of authority. There was a reason that they responded differently. Simon had a framework 
a, a way of seeing life that involved having had much celebrity. He had for some time, as we read in, in verse 9, he had for some time been going about doing this sorcery. And as he practiced his sorcery in that city, he amazed all the people of Samaria. Now that's a particularly interesting thing since the, the Samaritans also considered themselves people of God, parallel in some ways to Israel. They were, there was great, uh, there was great uh, animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. The Samaritans believed, they, were, they also descended from Abraham, believed that they worshipped the true living God. And the Jews said that they needed to worship there on, on Mount Zion. And yet, here in Samaria, sorcery was being rampantly practiced. And all the people were amazed by this magician, this sorcerer. Contrary to God's explicit command that there should never be tolerated a sorcerer to live in the nation. It should not ever be. And yet Simon had beguiled the people with his, with his magic, with his sorcery. Simon knew the power of celebrity. The Ethiopian knew the meaning of authority. Simon had gained his notoriety through his own skills, so to speak. And as he did this, he gained power among the people. He became somebody, as he called himself, really important. He thought he was special because the people would follow him. We can see that same thing today. People follow celebrities all the time. We have magazines dedicated to it, all sorts of internet channels dedicated to it. There is a billion dollar, couple, many billion dollar industry dedicated simply to the influence of celebrity. So much so that we love just love to hear people in Hollywood talk about politics and how much they know. And we love to listen. Why? Because they make movies. So they must be smart. In the same kind of a dynamic, the people of Samaria, particularly in this city, had followed Simon. He had gained a name for himself. Therefore, this became a real struggle for him when Philip came. Notice in the text, um, <clears throat> verse 9, Now for some time a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, of all the classes, all the different statuses in the, in the community, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. It appears that he called himself that, and they bought it. They followed him, notice this, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. This celebrity gave him power. But when they believed Philip, in verse 12, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, 
They were baptized, both men and women. Now, there's a lot to develop here, and we won't get into it today, but man, i got to tell you, to see the power of the gospel, notice when they heard the message that he proclaimed, they believed. Now, he was also doing miraculous things, but there's an emphasis in what Luke says about the people believing that they heard this proclaimed word, and they believed and were baptized. They were identified with Christ and his church. This is an important point. Simon himself, in verse 13, in the New King James Version says, Then, after they believed, Simon believed. I don't know whether that's an accurate rendering, but in any case, we see in verse 13, Simon himself also believed and was baptized. He saw what Philip was doing, and he heard the message, and it made sense. But notice what motivated him. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Luke emphasizes the fact that the people on Moss were, were converting because of the message. Simon and presumably many others, but, but Simon in particular, there's an emphasis that Luke makes that he is astonished by the signs and wonders. We love experiences today. We love to have demonstrative churches. In fact, some of the big revivalist type, uh, type churches will get really caught up in, in methods and we really feel like it must be the power of God when, when people are demonstrating special spiritual gifts or speaking in tongues or, or performing miracles or claiming to perform miracles. And Man, that's power. But the only person in this whole story whose primary focus is on the experience is Simon. Simon knew the power of celebrity. The Ethiopian knew the meaning of authority. Notice what we are told about this Ethiopian. Uh, this is in verse 27. So Philip started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. Other translations, depending on what you're reading, render that Candace, which is a name given or a title given like Pharaoh or Caesar or uh, to the queen mother in Ethiopia. So as we think of this Ethiopian eunuch, think in terms of the, the treasury secretary. This is an important guy. He's with this chariot with a staff manned, manning that chariot who report to him. He understands authority. Now when you really get authority, when, you, when you're in a position of significance, then you tend to not be overly impressed by the flash that comes along with the short timers. People come up and you'll see people come and go. As I'm, <laughs> as I'm standing here preaching, I see Rachel, our keyboardist over here, who's been a manager with Fifth Third Bank for a long time. You've seen a lot of people come and go, haven't you? A lot of hot shots who come up. And as quickly as they come, they go. They, they talk a good game. They can even perform well in the short term. But true authority is different. Real recognize real. That's what happens here. 
the Ethiopian eunuch is an actual authoritative person. He gets it. So he's not overly moved by powerful demonstrations or emotional experiences. So when Philip comes to him, he doesn't even need to bring signs and wonders. The Spirit prompts him to go. He goes. And he gets alongside this chariot. It's important for us to recognize his techniques here. And I, I would encourage you sometime, if you want to actually look at how to do evangelism, man, take a walk through the, through the book of Acts and see how evangelism gets done here. It's relational. It's purposeful. And it's natural. So Philip comes alongside of him, and he gets up with him, and he starts up a conversation. But it's not just, hey, how's the weather? Do you see who the Bears picked up in free agency? Instead, he comes along and he says, hey, I see, what, see you're reading something here. Do you understand what you're reading? you got Isaiah the prophet in front of you. And this important Ethiopian official says, how would I know? How would I understand unless someone explains it to me? And he reads from Isaiah this passage that at the time was debated by the rabbis. Some thought maybe Isaiah was talking about himself. Some thought maybe the, the, the suffering one under God's wrath, under God's punishment. Still others thought perhaps this referred to the Messiah who would come. We have the benefit of hindsight to be able to look back and have the New Testament interpret the old for us. Simon knew the power of celebrity. The Ethiopian knew the meaning of authority. It, it impacted their lenses through which they looked at things. Simon saw Philip doing powerful things, and he wanted some of that. Wait a minute. I've been working this scene for a long time, and everybody's following me, but I can't do what this cat can do. I'm going to have to get on board and check this out. Now, I don't question whether he actually believed. I think that's an important thing for us to recognize. He may very well have actually believed the message, but belief is not the same as faith. There are a lot of people who believe that Jesus Christ was a real person who lived and died. Most of the people that you and I talk to on a regular basis, most people would say they believe in God. They believe in a higher power. They believe in a creator or an intelligent designer. Seeing an increasing movement even among what had been a, a very atheistic uh, science class, science elite in our society, increasingly saying, wait a minute, the evidence points to something. I don't know if I can say God, but to, points to something. So we're seeing an, a, a basic belief that is not faith. There's a dramatic difference. The Ethiopian, on the other hand, as he saw this, he was seeking God in the Scriptures, not in powerful experiences, not in emotional feelings. He was reading the Scripture. And he came to terms with God as God presents himself in his word. Simon knew the power of celebrity. The Ethiopian knew the meaning of authority. Notice also another contrast between them. Simon was awed by the power of God's message. The Ethiopian was convicted by the truth of God's message. 
Simon was awed by the power of God's messengers. The Ethiopian was convicted by the truth of God's message. As Simon was drawn in, he, he kept on following Philip. <laughs> Matthew Henry, in his commentary on the passage, said that even, a bad, even bad men, very bad, can be in a good frame, very good, when they are around the people who are bringing the gospel. And as long as this man followed, followed Philip, he seemed to be tracking. He believed the message so it would appear. But he hadn't been changed in his heart. He was even baptized. He gave up being the sorcerer, at least for the moment. He identified with the church through the act of baptism. He went under the water. He professed Christ with his mouth. He even must have at some point, to some extent, assented to the reality of what Philip was saying with his mind. But what he did not seem to do, by what we read, is to cherish the Lord in his heart. He was still seeking flesh-oriented things. He was awed by what Philip was doing. And he was overawed by what Peter and John were doing. Notice what happens as Peter and John join Picking up in verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, not just heard it, not just that it had been preached there, but that they accepted it, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. This is significant. So now that out here in Samaria, where there's hostility between Jews and Samaritans, they, they don't cross paths, the gospel is being accepted. So Peter and John go to these that they would consider to be half-breeds, half-brothers. They go out there to them, and they send Peter and John so that the apostolic authority would be carried out, that they could engage in teaching, that they could lead them, that they could connect the Samaritan believers and the Jerusalem believers, that there would be authority and unity and brotherhood brought to them. When they arrived in verse 15, they prayed for the new believers that, there might, that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This does not confirm the false indication or the false teaching that the Holy Spirit comes to us separate from salvation. But in this time of, of transition in the early church, and particularly in situations like this, we don't see it everywhere in the spread of the gospel in Acts, but when we do see it, there are specific reasons. And the manifestation of the Spirit, as we saw in Acts 2, seems to be in mind here. If we read the rest of the scriptures, and what Paul tells us later, all who receive Christ receive the Spirit of Christ. All who have Jesus have the Holy Spirit in them. That does not appear to be what we're talking about. Not the still small voice of God, not the personal presence of God with them, but the manifest glory of God in the act of the Holy Spirit. And we see that a lot come up. So bear this in mind that what has not happened yet, they have believed, they have uh, uh, by all accounts here, received the Spirit of Christ. They've been joined to the church through the act of baptism. Now, through the apostolic authority of Peter and John, they come, lay hands on them, conferring the, the blessing and approval of the apostles. And in this act, they receive the Holy Spirit 
in powerful manifestations so that it would be recognized by all others where there might be this animosity between Jews and Samaritans. There is a recognition now that, hey, wait a minute, these guys belong to the same group. They have received the same Holy Spirit. Very similar happened later uh, as the Gentiles outside of, of Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, outside of there, received the gospel and received the Holy Spirit. So as back to what we were saying with, uh, with Simon's awe of God's messengers, when he sees what's happening here, Acts chapter 8, verse 17, then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, all right, buddy, here we go. He offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He is awed by the power of God's messengers. The Ethiopian, on the other hand, was convicted by the truth of God's message. In verse 30, Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This becomes a gospel conversation. It starts out as just, hey, I see you're reading something. What are you reading? Do you get it? Okay, I don't get it. Can you explain it? Absolutely. Let's talk. Jump up. We have a conversation. Here's the passage the eunuch was reading in verse 32. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Now, if you've been with us for any length of, of time, you immediately recognize that as Isaiah 53, because we've spent a lot of time in the last several months going back to Isaiah 53. The Ethiopian, sitting with Philip, receiving the explanation, was able to connect the dots. A man of authority who sees here in this suffering servant something dramatically different. Verse 34, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who's the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. This eunuch was not impressed with signs and wonders. There's no mention of those at all. He didn't even see the signs and wonders. What happened was he saw the scriptures, and he realized that Jesus the Messiah, as Philip was explaining it, Jesus the Messiah, the King of glory, putting on flesh, took my stripes on his back. He was crushed for me. The Ethiopian would recognize that it's our sins that put Jesus on the cross. And his first response is, i got to give him myself. And he chooses to be baptized. They stop the chariot and they do it. And, and the Spirit takes Philip away to go preach elsewhere. Simon and the Ethiopian both did the same thing in response. At least on the outside. They both saw the gospel, and chose to be baptized. They both had the outer sign, the initiation rite of joining the church, identifying with the death and resurrection of Christ and His body. Only one of them actually 
was reborn. 